0: You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Um, we will be in Deuteronomy chapter 26, if you turn there with me in your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 26, um, we've been in Genesis, we'll come back to that later, um. starting in verse 1. It says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall put it in a basket. You shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name to dwell there. You shall go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering airman was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great. "'Mighty and populous. "'And the Egyptians treated us harshly, and humiliated us, "'and laid on us hard labor. "'Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, "'and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, "'our toil and our oppression. "'And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand "'and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, "'with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, "'a land flowing with milk and honey.' Behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God, and worship before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you, and to your house, you and the Levite, and the sojourner who is among you. Let's pray. Father, we know that when we come close to your word We are coming close to you. These are more than words on a page, Lord. They reveal to us who you are. So, Lord, we pray that we would um, remember the gravity and the weight of what it is to consider your word. And we pray that your spirit would give us ears that hear and eyes that see, Lord, a mind that believes. Lord, let us see and let us know. So, Lord, we trust in you just want to hear from you in these moments. So let your we pray. Amen. C.S. Lewis once wrote, The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only By putting first things first. Um, You probably don't, good for you if you do, uh, have a million dollars. You may not have anything close to that. I don't. Uh, But you you may have a few bucks in your pocket. Uh, You may be here this morning. And you may be very young. You have your whole life ahead of you. Or you may be, you know, on the other end of the spectrum. Either way, you have at least some time. So you may not have the amount of money. You may not have the amount of time. You may not have the talent that you wish you had. But nonetheless, you have some measure of it. And the question God is most concerned with, and consequently we should be then, is not how much more of it would I like to have. Rather, what are you doing with what you do have? And as the church, we take special care to make sure our lives are rightly ordered, that we are keeping first things first. Dogs certainly aren't evil. Um, Money, time, talents, these things are, I suppose, amoral. It's a question. The concern is seeing them right in light of who God is and what God expects of his people. And even also, in addition to that, what God ultimately wants for his people. So as sinful people, we have a terrible tendency to take what's good, um, warp it, manipulate it, twist it. So we need God's redemptive word to set us straight. We need to be taught again how and why to keep first things first. So if you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 1 there, it says, When? And we can't get any farther than that when. The implications of the when are stinging. It hurts. It's not insignificant. For the Israelites, it's painful. It does not say, um, now that you have come into the land, it does not say, since you have had happy travels and you have arrived here safely, it says when. Why when and not now that or since that? Turn with me, if you would, to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, Who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness." So the people, the Israelites, they're on the very precipice of coming into the land that God promised so long ago they would have. And now God is trying to simply place in their hands what he assured he would give. He covenanted himself to them formally uh, and even historically to their father, Abraham. Yet... Time and time again, despite though now God's promising an imminent victory, the people cannot, will not believe that God alone is their sole provider. They will not believe it. They constantly disbelieve and doubt God, despite the, the apparent blessings he continually showers them with. And the disbelieving, they ultimately receive what they really want. Distance. Distance from God. Distance from the good that God desires for them. So here in Deuteronomy chapter 26, this is a word from a much older Moses to these formerly younger generations who had to wander around in the wilderness due to the sins and the disbelief of their parents, of these former generations. So they dare not ignore what Moses has to say. And notice again here in Deuteronomy 26, how plain Moses speaks to the people. When you come into the land that the Lord, your God, has given you, so you didn't come up with it, God gave it to you. As an inheritance, and you've taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land, that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket. You should go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you should go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare, and the Hebrew means say it out loud, say it proud, say it like you mean it. It means to say something with great authority. It means to say it with, with great emphasis. I declare today that the Lord your God, that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Can Moses be making any plainer of a statement to the people? could God's word be making any plainer of a statement to us? From God and God alone come the good things that we need. God and God alone provide us with the provision that we need, period. In the proof of our disbelief, it'll be found in our lack of desire and willpower to give God the very best of what we have. We're only moved to give to the Lord and certainly the first fruits of what we have when we're gleefully sure it's all his in the first place. And my whole life, my welfare, my well being that's just so much of his problem and property too. Everything I have, everything I need, equally at God's disposal to take care of. Because he's some disgruntled father that has to? No, because he said to me, I want to. I want to provide for you. I'm promising myself to you. You see, so once I'm fully convinced I live in God's universe, everything I have and everything I need, that's a prerogative God's taken upon himself. I then must determine, we must determine whether or not we're going to live life as it actually is. According to what God has said in his word, the promise that God has made to us as a father, which requires true belief. That's hard. Usually what people do, what we tend to do is live according to a broken, warped rationale, according to the ungodly, sinful self that wants to self-promote only. It's a non-reality in which God is not good and supreme. The world is dog-eat-dog. Dog, everyone has to be out for themselves. And God is ultimately unknowable or untrustworthy. But we as the church know deep in our bones that's not the case. It's what the Israelites, so many of them, failed to really see. And really, I think if you had to sum up everything Moses ever said, it's this. Just be different. Be different by the way you trust God to be your provider and your provider alone. And so the happy proof then of my faith in God, it will be found in my burning desire and overwhelming willpower to give God the first fruits of my life time and time Again, consider how Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. So therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Is there a failure in your life to keep first things first because there is truly a failure in your life to actually and honestly believe God and take him at his word? Like everything else, the issue of giving God of our first fruits, which larger we're talking about money here, Unless you're a farmer and you strictly live off uh, the fruit of your land, we're talking about sustenance, we're talking about our security. Yes, our time, yes, our devotion, yes, our whole life. But what we think about giving God the first fruits of our life, it has everything to do with, it's undeniably tied to what we do or don't think about the glory of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, all things are from God. All things go through God and all things come back to God for his glory. So if God has ordained and raised up his church to live in a posture with open hands, open wallets, open life, so that God may be their provider and be shown to be who he said he is, yet we're withholding the first fruits of our life from him, we're not simply in disobedience. That's actually an affront on, an offense against the glory of God. Philip um, Godella, who was a popular biographer of the early 20th century, he once said this. The hardest problem the biographer faces is that of discovering the real person about whom he is to write. It is fairly easy, he said, to find out what the subject did, where the subject went, and what the subject said. But what kind of person lives inside is a different matter. He illustrated his point by citing his biography of the Duke of Wellington. He came across unimpeachable evidence of who the Duke was when he discovered his old checkbooks. And I hate the question, where does it say in the New Testament, I got to give a certain amount of money or any money at all to the church or to God? Here's why I hate the question, and I'm not going to entertain it. Because the question, it's rooted in a fleshly desire to figure out how can I still keep the most of what I have for myself. That's what it's rooted in. Because the question you would ask is, hey, is there a limit on how much I can give? Because if you look through the New Testament, what you would find, and it would be plain, is that those people build a 10% thing through the roof. They're giving not out of the abundance of their wealth. Paul says, they're giving out the abundance of their poverty. They're selling everything they have for the needs and welfare of the church. They're selling and giving everything they have so the local church stays healthy and provided for, that local churches can go around the globe, that the kingdom of God can expand. So if you're asking those kinds of questions, how can I still preserve myself as much as I can? You've yet to encounter the generous God who says he is your sole provider. So maybe becoming a regular tither and giver to the local church today is the remedy for your long-standing sinful disbelief. First things first. Look at verse 4 with me, chapter 26. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt, and he sojourned there few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly, humiliated us, laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice, saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So God is making them say out loud another resuscitation. Um, and what is it? It's a short, redacted version of their uh, history as a nation. But why is God making them do that? Wandering Aramean as Jacob. And Jacob, remember, shouldn't have existed because remember his father Isaac shouldn't have existed because remember his mother was barren and very old. But remember, he came nonetheless And you remember Joseph had those 12 sons and they all hated Joseph, right? Jacob's son, Joseph. So what did they all do? They sold Joseph into slavery secretly, remember? And all hope was lost for him. But remember years later when the famine came and they shouldn't have existed, that they should have died. What happened? Joseph, remember he took over Egypt and he ran the place. So when he found dad and his family, they only, they had more than enough. I mean, they, they, they came into Egypt and they became a great and mighty and populous nation, remember. And remember, Pharaoh was so threatened by them, he enslaved them for 400 years. And remember, they were without hope. But remember, God sent Moses. And remember, Moses brought the plagues. And you remember the Nile. Remember, God turned it to blood. And remember all the frogs and they were everywhere and they died and it was disgusting and it stank. And remember the gnats and the flies and they bit everybody. They didn't bite the Israelites. They, bought the, they, they, they bit the Egyptians. And you remember the livestock, all the livestock died? Not the Israelites' livestock, the Egyptians' livestock. And you remember those nasty boils that covered everybody's body? But remember, it wasn't the Israelites. It was the Egyptians who were covered in boils. And you remember the hailstorm. Man, were they big, and they fell. And you remember they killed all kinds of people. And they killed all kinds of cattle. But remember, they didn't kill any of the Israelites or their cattle. And you remember the locusts and how the locusts ate all the vegetation? Not of the Israelites, of the Egyptians. And you remember that darkness that covered the land? It was so dark you couldn't see in front of your face. But not the Israelites, just the Egyptians. And then you remember the Spirit of God passed through Egypt? And he took the firstborn of all the people and the firstborn even of all the cattle. But the Israelites, remember, they were spared by the blood of the lamb. And then remember, we finally, they're finally on their way out and they're free, but Pharaoh changed his mind. And here he comes with the army. He's gonna kill us all. There's no hope. But what does God do, remember? He splits the Red Sea open and they cross on wet ground? No, they cross on dry ground. And then Pharaoh and his army, what happens? They're swallowed up, remember? And remember, they were hungry, but God dropped food from heaven. And remember, they were thirsty, but God gave water from a rock. And remember, God went with them as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And remember, the walls of Jericho fell. And remember, they defeated all of their armies. And remember, they came into the land just like God said. What is God doing? It's almost insulting. But we deserve it because we're so forgetful. He's saying, go to the place where I am, stand in my presence and say out loud to my face, you have been nothing but remarkably faithful. Your character, impeccable. Your trustworthiness, undeniable. So here in your presence, I give you the very best of what I have because you and you alone deserve it. You and you alone deserve my worship. Oftentimes, we fail to keep first things first, not because we don't in the core of our person really believe, simply because we just fail to remember God's faithfulness in times past. In other words, we have a really bad tendency to forget our own stories. The wilderness experience... It was a direct result of the people's refusal to dwell on God's matchless rescue of them and faithfulness to them in times past. So in the present, they don't remember any of that. They choose not to remember any of that. All they have is fear. All they have are complaints. All they have are concerns. And it's the same for us. In the busyness of life, under the weight of trials, because we're sinful people, we just forget our stories and consequently God's faithfulness. Because here's the thing. If, if you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, your story is only this. God has always been, God is, and God will be faithful. The two are one in the same. It's not a matter of whether or not he will be. It's a matter of whether or not we will remember who he is according to the virtue of his unchangeable nature, who his word reveals him to be. God is faithful. God is good and good to his own. Can't be subjected to argument or discussion as if there's some plausible case from your life or mine or human history. I love how the psalmist says it in Psalm chapter 37, verse 25. He says, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. What we do is deceive ourselves into thinking God isn't faithful because we allow the present temporal valley to overwhelm us. Job didn't take his wife's advice to curse God and die because Job sized up his temporal valley, his present hurt, not according to what was happening, but according to the nature of his father and God, who he had always known. Job says, shall we receive good from God and not evil? That's a statement of true belief. Because here's the thing. Belief and trust are never accommodated by understanding and comprehension in every season of life. They're just not. Belief and trust in God are never accommodated with comprehension and understanding in every season of life. So the discerning, believing child of God then is just as grateful for the valley as they are for the mountain. Because we know God's doing a work in the valley for his glory and my good. The mountaintop experience never could have brought. So when I look back, I see, man, that was bad in the moment. But look what God did that never would have happened otherwise. Years 1 through 400, were those bad? Yeah, they're bad. Slavery was horrible. And I think you and I can look back on seasons and say, man, was that bad. But man, oh man, was God's timing, was God's faithfulness, was God's rescue of of the Israelites incredible when it finally came. What an incredible story they had to tell. They chose not to, they chose to forget it. So the question then for us is, remembering the Lord, who he is, is a normal rhythm and habit of your life? It's got to be. It's not something we do by accident. And sure enough, the fight of life will always work like gravity to keep us from it. But we should, we should heed the psalmist. Psalm 9, 1, he says, I will give thanks to the Lord. There's so two ways about it. I will recount all of his wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in him. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High constantly recalling the faithfulness of God in times past, it's a medicine and it's a balm that keeps us from in the present doubting God and withholding the first fruits of our lives. Remembering his goodness and faithfulness, it drives us to sacrificial living and thankfulness, knowing God will keep us in the present and in the future as he has in times past. A pastor who was in prison under Nazi Germany one said this Christianity is not an ethic nor is it a system of dogmatics but a living thing one cannot deal with god in solitude or in remoteness only but in the struggles of life it's in the real struggle of life. You will be tempted and pushed to disbelieve and doubt God. You forget his faithfulness. It must then be in the actual struggle of life. You are consciously, on purpose, remembering God's faithfulness, who you know him to be, and knowing from the past that he's going to show up as he always has. So let me ask you a question. You consider it in your own heart. Is it possible that we fail to give God the first fruits of our life, Money, time, devotion, because we have taken our marching orders from a too busy, certainly too distracted 21st century. Have we simply just run out of time to remember how worthy the Lord is and that to him and him only are due our first God cannot be something on the schedule of life. Everything must be oriented around him. When you add something to your schedule, practical question, do you first wonder, do you first ask, I wonder in what way if I do this thing, it's going to help or hurt me regularly, remember and know the Lord and consequently then take away or add to how I'm giving God the first fruits of my life. You say, well, gosh, that would be like incredibly, like, intentional. What do your mornings look like? I go to work. That's it. Well, yeah, I wake up, throw my clothes on, go to work. Well, what do your evenings look like? Well, I come home and I eat and watch TV and go to bed. I'm staying up too late to get up early to do anything else. What about actual dinner time with your family? What do you do then? You see, when you put your actual life as it is on paper, you discover how careless and aimless you are with how you're devoting yourself to remembering the Lord and then giving him the first fruits of your time. And to be very honest with you from the heart, one of the most frustrating things about being a pastor in the 21st century is constantly fighting the competition of everyone's so important, so busy life. Blood of Jesus, save me from eternal damnation, new life in Christ. My house will be called a house of prayer, growing in prayer, following Jesus, growing in obedience, evangelistic, missional life, growing in the word, growing with the saints, committed to the local church, whatever they need. We'll see about it. And I'm not trying to beat anyone over the head. And I'm certainly not trying to devalue the work of your hands. Work is good. I'm simply saying what I've only been saying this morning. First things are first things. You either do or don't find the things of God to be worth prioritizing. First things first. Look with me at verse 11. Deuteronomy. It says "And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you." So keeping first things first, it's ultimately a question of in who or in what do you find real purpose, uh, real satisfaction and real joy? To those things will go your allegiance. So in who or in what do you really find joy? Where's your joy rooted, right? And so if we distrusted the promise of the Lord that he alone is our sole provider, we should heed what the prophet Hosea says. Say to your hands, no more are you my God. No more the work of my hands, my God. And if we failed in the busyness and struggle of life to remember who God is, we should with the psalmist say, I'm never going to conceal the faithfulness of the Lord in my heart. I'm always going to say it out loud. I'm always going to recount and meditate on God's mighty deeds. Really though, there's only one thing to hear. If we're failing to keep first things first, what we need to hear anew and afresh is nothing other than the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work church, on this side of history, we can look back and we can see God's faithfulness in times past because we can see the cross of Jesus Christ. We can see that Jesus lived Jesus died and Jesus rose again, just as God always said he would. Jesus dealt with our sin problem and made a way for us back to God to be renewed and be restored to our father. So when back God's grace and God's spirit, I look back and I see God's faithfulness on the cross. In the present, the spirit of God is filling me. The spirit of God is leading me to trust the Lord more, to believe the, more, the Lord more, to give more away of this life because here it is. I either am trying to keep one foot in this kingdom and one foot in God's kingdom. And I'm going to try to get both and have none. Or I'm going to listen to the Spirit, though it's painful and it requires great faith in the moment. I'm going to believe God and the Spirit's going to testify. I'm God's child. And the Spirit is going to continually raise me up through the truth of God's word. Prepare me for my real joy. And my real joy, like Paul said, is not located in my bank account. It's not located uh, on my timesheet. It's not located in anything other than Jesus Christ. So the happy proof then that Jesus and Jesus alone is my joy and all joys rooted in Jesus, you know what it is? It's gonna be in the here and now when I cheerfully and I joyfully say, God, what do you want? You want 10? You want 20? What do you want, 50? 150? I don't care. My joy is not rooted in my money. Lord, do I need to quit this job? Do I need to move across the world to the other side to tell somebody about you? I don't care because my joy is not rooted in my life here. My joy is rooted in Jesus, in heaven. So you can say it. Oh, I love Jesus. Oh, my joy is in Jesus. And you can say it and get a lot of people to believe you, but I can see it in your life. Live what you do with your money, what you do with your time, who you're really serving and who your master really, really is. Paul says, I count the loss of all things a joy so that I can... No, thou have gained Christ. Can you say that with Paul, that you've gained Christ and Christ is enough? You can't have both kingdoms. And when we keep first things first, it's a proof to us and the world around us that Jesus is good and that Jesus is enough. You can't be different like the Israelites were supposed to be. You can't be different like God calls his church to be. And people not wonder why aren't you investing your money the same way? Why don't you invest your time the same way? How come you did this? How come you did that? Why are you so different? And there on offer to them is the same life and joy that Christ has given to you. So don't miss out on how God is trying to increase your joy and more and more and also bring others to have the joy for the first time because in your sin and in wickedness we're constantly trying to self self preserve at the same time say no God you're my God I trust you alone you're so faithful who is your God who is your master who is your Lord your checkbook your time your life will tell you there's a worship song that came out a couple years ago and it's very simple and I sing it to myself all the time I thought I'd read the lyrics of it to you. If I get so happy, I might sing it. First verse says, I don't need the riches of this world. I can't even take them where I'm going. It's true. And I don't need a thousand empty words, I just need the ones that you have spoken. The chorus says, if I have you and nothing else, I have everything. If I have you and nothing else, I have everything, Jesus. I don't need to see tomorrow's plans. I just need to trust that you're working. I don't even need to understand. I just need to keep you as the first thing. If you said to Jesus this morning, Jesus, if I have you and nothing else, I have everything. That'd be, that be remotely true for you. Be remotely true. Is your true joy found in Christ with God? The spiritual blessings in the heavenly place? Do you have do you have eyes for eternity? If so, first things first. Here in us as believers, here in us. In this church. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church. Or what it means to follow Christ. You can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com